0: Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 195, Rebel Buddha. We're joined this week by Dzogchen Punlap Rinpoche to explore several key points related to the evolution of a more contemporary and modern form of Buddhism. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, Please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello Buddhist Geeks, this is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with Dzogchen Punlap Rinpoche. We've had you on Buddhist Geeks before, but I'm really, really grateful to have you on again. You're one of our favorite guests, so thank you for joining us again.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me here.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. And, you know, last time we interviewed you, it was in Boulder in one of our apartments, and today it's going to be online, and it feels sort of fitting for it to be online. Um, (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I'm on the road all the time. Yeah, yeah, you're on the road all the time. You're doing a lot, promoting now your new book, Rebel Buddha on the road to freedom. Uh, it's in the subtitle too. It's everywhere. We wanted to talk with you today a, a little bit about that book, some of the content in the book, some of the teachings really there. And maybe just to start, I just wanted to say a little bit about your background. Uh, many people have heard of you. You're a traditionally trained Tibetan Buddhist teacher, but you're also an urban dweller for the last 20 years. You've lived in the West probably is about half your life or more than half.
1: That's correct, yeah, about half.
0: Okay, in your Generation X teacher, so you're one of those sort of in-between teachers, not the kind of original, completely traditionally trained, but also you had your roots firmly in that world. So you're this interesting hybrid mix, almost, of teacher. It's very fascinating.
1: Yeah, the Generation X to have uh,
0: identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Did, did that happen for you, too? Did you feel like you had an identity crisis?
1: Oh, yes, ever since I've been studying emptiness.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, jumping right into the content of um, of Rebel Buddha and the teachings, this book seems like somewhat of a departure from your earlier writings. It definitely has a different tone, and it almost seems like maybe a different audience. And I wanted to ask you about that. Was that intentional Or is it just something that's happened naturally as part of your own growth?
1: Actually, it just happened uh, naturally as I keep living here in the West and teaching and relating to the situation of Western Buddhism and facing the challenges we have from uh, this uh, transition from traditional uh, Asian Buddhist culture to the modern West. So I think it's a natural evolution here.
0: And really closely connected to that, one of the main things you you write about in Rebel Buddha is the need to see beyond culture. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about what you mean by seeing beyond culture as it relates to the Buddhist teachings and practices that you've been teaching for so long. It's
1: important for us to see, oh, what is the true message here? The wisdom and compassion that Buddha has taught, which is uh, so helpful and useful for any time. And so sometimes that uh, pure wisdom and compassion teachings get a little confusing or not clear because of the cultural barriers. And so when we can cut through the cultural barrier, then this wisdom and the compassion but the loving heart teachings are universal and beyond any culture and language.
0: It's interesting for you to say they're they're beyond any culture and language because you also write in Rebel Buddha, wherever there is mind, there's culture, and wherever there's culture, there's mind. So in that sense, I kind of understood that to mean something like what the Buddhist teachings are pointing to is beyond culture, and yet it seems like whenever we open our mouths to try to talk about things, we're already involved in culture. How would you respond to that paradox or that question around how culture seems to be inevitable or something that we can't avoid even?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. But actually, when I say beyond culture, I'm talking about the Dharma or the you know, Buddhism itself or the Buddhist teaching. But whenever we express that wisdom and compassion in any form, in any language, then there's always some um, cultural context naturally. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, it does. And when you say the barriers, what did you mean <laughs> by the barriers, overcoming the barriers of culture?
1: When we connect Buddhism with only like a certain form of Asian culture, then that becomes a barrier for us to see the true wisdom or the true teachings on compassion and love. You know, what I really mean the cultural barrier is when we identify this wisdom and this compassion teachings with a culture, then we don't really see the true teachings here.
0: Are there certain things you've been doing in your own teaching to change it, to make it more accessible or to make it more palatable? recognizable even, there's certain things you've actually changed in terms of the form or in terms of the culture?
1: For me, it's a really interesting journey because uh, it's not really about changing anything, but it's about going back to the root. When you really go back to the original teaching of the Buddha, then it's really clear it's beyond culture and beyond tradition. I have a quote here in this book, Rebel Buddha. You know, where Buddha said, Do not believe in anything because it is spoken and rumored by many. Do not believe in anything simply because it is found written in your religious books. Do not believe in traditions because they have been handed down for many generations in you know, all these things. So it's very clear that original teachings of the Buddha is very uh, straightforward you know genuine wisdom and genuine compassion you know
0: another kind of core teaching or root teaching that you mention is this experience and understanding of what we translated as emptiness and mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what emptiness is or your understanding and and perhaps also what it isn't because that seems like something that that you focus on that seems pretty important is saying what Is emptiness not?
1: So, you mean we should talk about nothing? (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) So let's talk about nothing. (laughs) Uh, Well, emptiness is really very much misunderstood in my view. I mean, it's not only in the West, but it's everywhere. But especially in the West, because uh, this concept is so new, and also... The language is quite difficult, you know, in English, when we say emptiness, it's sometimes taken as a negative or uh, just vacuum, a state of a vegetable or something like that, uh, which is not actually emptiness is, uh, according to Buddha's teaching, it is like the ground of everything. It's the space, it's the openness. Like, for example, you know, when the room is uh, spacious and open, then there's a possibility of anything. You can arrange the room in any way you want. Anything can manifest in that room. But when the room is fully cluttered, messy, then there's nothing, you know, you can really do in that room. There's no possibility of things to manifest. So it's like that, you know, emptiness is really the ground of every... Experience ground of every manifestation of any forms, any sounds, any feelings, and so it is more than nothingness.
0: Yes. Yeah. Another um, thing you mentioned, which really struck me, was that sometimes we get this idea that emptiness is super ordinary. That you know, we have images of yogis flying through space and things like that. You talked about the ordinariness of that experience. Could you say maybe a little bit more about ordinariness? (laughs) It's a funny question.
1: Ordinariness about emptiness? (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think emptiness, in a sense, is uh, pervading in all our living experiences. And so it's so simple. It's right here and when we make it a big deal into something unreachable then it becomes very difficult to understand so i think we have this tendency to make simple things difficult and we take pride in that generally i think that's one of our habitual tendencies here
0: another interesting thing i saw you speak about there in the book is the role of the teacher and mm-hmm. Particularly in Buddhist organizations, you said that um, nowadays many teachers are also playing the role of what we might consider the CEO, you know, like in a major mm-hmm. corporation. And you spoke a little bit about the strengths and also the pitfalls of that. And I wondered if you could share a little bit, because it's not often that I see teachers take a step back and look at their own organizations and their own roles in them in a way that, that you were. And it, it seemed like a very interesting topic
1: Yes, I think. (laughs) Especially myself, like, you know, they say I'm the seventh incarnation and so forth and so on. But I tell all my students that I'm the seventh CEO. There have been six predecessors. (laughs) And so I'm trying to do my job and see if I can beat them. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. So, you know, I just see generally teachers have the role of not only teaching or making the wisdom uh, tradition available but also creating the container to hold these teachings which is the organization therefore there's also sometimes uh, you know teachers have to play the role of the head of the organization and leading the administration And sometimes uh, we can separate those two, sometimes we cannot. And so when we play that role, sometimes there's a misunderstanding that, oh, you know, when you see the teacher just as a CEO, then there's a problem here, you know. There's a lot of our ordinary concepts around that, which uh, can bring a lot of negative feelings.
0: Can that get in the way of the transformative potential that's there between student and teacher the way we normally think of?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. There's a possibility for doing that. But if you fall back into our ordinary habits of always focusing on faults, then doesn't matter whether your teacher is uh, Shakyamuni Buddha or this guy or girl in front of you, you will always find some faults.
0: Interesting, thank you.
1: Yeah, it's same like, you know, with everything in our life, you know, with our partners, with our gadgets, if you look at these objects, you know, with a negative lens, then you will always see negative side on this uh, gadget or our partner or whatever. But if you look with a positive lens, then you will always see something positive. You know, there's always something positive about everything, yeah.
0: One last question I had for you. It's in a chapter that you wrote called A Lineage of Awakening. There's a little stanza there that really seemed interesting to me. You wrote that we can preserve the wisdom that imbues this tradition by studying and practicing it to the point where we wake up. This applies to the new generation of practitioners just starting to attend teachings and retreats, as well as to those of you who have been doing that for years and years. Then you Mm -hmm. go on to say, I sometimes wonder why some of you are still at it, because I see so little confidence in the possibility of waking up now. The message of the Buddha is that you're awake now, and that you can, if you apply yourself, realize it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I found that to be a very strong statement that you were making you know, to the people that you've, I guess, encountered, and to maybe even students. I found it really interesting and wondered if you could say a little bit more about that lack of confidence in the possibility of waking up
1: Yes, I think like every moment, in every moment there's an opportunity, you know, for us to wake up. Mm. When we restrict that uh, possibility of waking up and reserve it to the end of our journey, then that end will never come. Whereas if we practice any meditation, if we practice any positive actions, and if we have our mind open, saying this may be our moment of awakening, then there's always this possibility of waking up in any moment. In Tibet, we have stories about monks achieving realization in the midst of a heated debate. Uh, Even though it's very conceptual, you know, lots of philosophical discussions going on there. In the midst of that, they say some people woke up, you know, have this awakening experience. And also there are stories about, uh, in India and Tibet, uh, many practitioners experience the awakening moment or uh, what do we call enlightenment in, you know, sometimes seemingly very ordinary. For example, one student was offering tea to his teacher and the teacher intentionally dropped the cup and then the cup broke and in that very moment... He gives some instructions like, you know, looking at mind and so on and say, like, that student achieved some realization or awakening moment in that very moment, which is very ordinary, right? Mm. We break cups all the time. You know, if we don't, we should try. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I was just thinking about what maybe like a contemporary stories would be, like someone posting to Twitter or to Facebook and then suddenly waking up. I was just wondering maybe have you, if there are any stories like that that are coming to... Um...
1: Or for me, like when the windows freeze or windows crash.
0: Oh, you know, yeah, totally.
1: Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moment when the hourglass never stops, you know. That's the moment. Or when you have uh, worked on a document, like that's 20 page long and suddenly it disappeared. That's like, ha, huh, wake up moment. <laughs> so thanks for Microsoft.
0: <laughs> Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference